Welcome to life, bringing you insight and experiences into love, relationship, and fertility with a focus on enjoying life and moving forward. On today's podcast, we'll be speaking about unexplained infertility with Dr. Shiva Talabian. Welcome to life, love, insight, fertility, experiences. Dr. Shiva Talabian, a reproductive endocrinologist, is with us today to chat about unexplained infertility, something that affects about a third of all those going through a fertility journey. She is the director of third-party reproduction at CCRM, a clinic in New York City that's also located throughout the United States and Canada. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's such an important topic that when you and I were chatting, when we first talked about you coming on, and you had said how about just talking about unexplained infertility, it seemed like the best way to start. Right. So, um, you know, I, I would say, you know, as you had mentioned in the intro, a third of individuals are diagnosed with unexplained infertility. And really, what does that mean? So that means that um, either an individual or a couple comes in to see me to um discuss their fertility, or I should say their inability to get pregnant. And um, we undergo all the sort of routine testing and everything is quote unquote normal, or there are no abnormal findings. And about a third of couples fall into that category where all of their diagnostic testing is normal. But what does that really mean? This could be a couple that has been trying for well over a year. So statistically, they really fall out of the range of what's considered kind of normal fertility, and there is infertility. So it really kind of gets into a discussion and about what is the fertility workup, uh, what does it entail, and you know what does it mean when you don't fall into any of those buckets. Right, and what that does to the people, to the couple, until they find out and just through the year until they get to you, they've gone to probably several doctors, several different kinds of doctors, and you are a reproductive endocrinologist. And I've had at times people, which was a little bit surprising when we spoke, ask me, well, why a reproductive endocrinologist? Why not just my OB? You know, I started there. Right. So your general OBGYN um, has, you know, a basic understanding in fertility, but they are not a specialist. So um, they are, are not really fully equipped to order all the required testing and interpret that testing and then give you feedback and information as to what they think a good plan will be for you. So, um, you know, definitely, though, your first stop is speaking to your general OBGYN. If you are trying to conceive and you are not getting pregnant, that would be the first time to speak up. And your generalist, your general OBGYN should ask you some questions and at some point should yeah. refer you to a specialist. Right, and that's usually, they would usually recommend trying for about a year. So yeah, or it, six months it, to a year. It depends, actually. It uh -huh. depends on your age. Um, uh -huh. Generally, if you're under the age of 35 as the female, and you've been, um, you technically, by definition, don't have infertility, infertility until you've tried for a full 12 months. However, if you speak to your general OBGYN and you're not getting regular periods, or oftentimes women are on hormonal contraception, stop and never get a period, um, that you're not going to wait a full year of no period before you see a specialist. So there are certain. Um, factors in the history where the your general OBGYN may refer you before the one-year mark. After well, that makes sense. 
That makes a lot right. of sense. After the age of 35, um, by definition, it's really six months of trying. So you mm-hmm. should be referred after six months of, of trying. And really after the age of 40, it's sort of a more immediate referral. Really after you've tried just for a couple months, you should be referred to a specialist. And that age, you know, I find when I talk to people, people get very, very nervous about the number. And they almost use it like clockwork. It's really interesting because what they'll say to me is, well, I'm 33. I still have two years. And how would you define that, or what would you suggest to people? I know what I suggest, but I yeah, I mean, I think that I think again, if you're 33, you've been trying for 10 months. Um, you're speaking to your OBGYN. Your OBGYN's taking a history, taking a menstrual history, kind of asking some basic questions. Your OBGYN may say, you know what, wait a cu- another couple months before you see a specialist, or your OBGYN may say, go see a specialist now. So it, there's not a hard, fast right. kind of line in the sand. Yeah. Um, you know, the textbook definition of infertility under 35 is a year of trying. But I see plenty of people who come see me at six months, at nine months, or even after four months. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm working with somebody who's 27 years old right now who's going, actually, I think, maybe to your clinic, come to think about it. And she just, she kind of knew. She said, I have to go right away. And she waited, I think, about six months, and she went. So the age is, it's a barometer, it's so a, to speak. Exactly. And um, and it's good to hear that you are looking at it that way. So what happens? They're trying. They're not conceiving. So they, they come to you, and now they have all these questions, anxiety. You know, there's been a change within the communication, what's going on with the partner, and you really have to explain to them everything that they're going to be going through over the course of the next, I don't know, month, two months, right. week. <laughs> so, um, you know, when I meet with a couple at the initial visit, we start out by talking. And we talk for probably a good solid 60 minutes. Um, and I speak That's to... That's a really in-depth interview. Yeah. So we speak... Um, I speak to both of them individually, take a really thorough history... Um, from them, family history, social history, genetic history. So they both get these questions. um, And then we talk about their trying. What does that entail? What have they been doing? You know, how have they been trying? Um, And, you know, so the the first part. And it even impacts that. That's where it really impacts the relationship too, how the couple's trying. Exactly. So, you know, we definitely, you know, spend a good portion where I'm sort of doing some investigative work. Um, And then the second portion of that discussion is me explaining what upcoming testing I'm going to recommend based on what they've told me. Um, And I always explain to couples, we, we really don't have a ton of tools in our toolbox, really, to be honest. And so um, a basic fertility evaluation is not very extensive. What is it? For the male, it's a semen analysis. If there are abnormalities to the semen analysis, then there's follow-up testing. Hormone levels, an exam, and that's typically done with a fertility urologist. So they may get, the male may get another referral. But it's typically just that one analysis for them. For the female, a little more involved, there's some assessment of the anatomy. So wanting to check the uterus to make sure it has kind of normal shape and size and also confirm that the fallopian tubes are open. Right. And so that test is typically, we call it the HST 
G, which is really a, it's a hysterosalpingogram. Mm-hmm. It's done um, typically at a radiology suite. You need an x-ray machine for it. So that's a test where the woman schedules um, usually with a radiologist. Sometimes the fertility specialist will go to a radiology center and do it. Okay. Um, it's typically scheduled at a certain point in the menstrual cycle once the bleeding ends before ovulation. Either the, you know, whichever doctor is performing the exam places a speculum, they infuse a radio opaque fluid, basically contrast into the uterus and they're taking x-rays and they're watching that fluid fill the uterus and then hopefully flow out of the fallopian tubes. So it's a test that's been around for decades. Um, it has. It's kind of, I guess, mm-hmm. you know, without doing invasive surgery, really the only way to confirm the fallopian tubes are open. Mm-hmm. There's some newer tests that are out that are similar, but using an ultrasound. Right. But I think like the gold standard for the fallopian tubes is really that HSG test. And so, how do the women feel when they're getting it? Is, there, is it painful or so, are they sedated? So they are not typically sedated. Um, and I think it really is, it is a test that is operator dependent. Uh-huh. So um, I don't exam- perform the test any longer. I did at, my, at a prior practice. I don't right. any longer. I just don't have access to an x-ray machine. Uh-huh. But I do know great imaging centers where the doctors are very skilled at it. They're, you know, again, it's a radiologist doing a gynecologic exam. So Of course, it's like going to any gynecologist. You know, it's interesting because when I went to your center maybe over a year ago at this point, maybe a year and a half ago, it seemed like there was so much equipment there and it was beautiful suites all over with different types of services that you offer. Right. Um, So it's unusual in my mind that you wouldn't have that there. Is there a reason for that? It, well, it's an x-ray machine. So right. it's a really big machine. You uh-huh. have to have like lead plates and a special room for it. Right. Um, so it, it's pretty involved. We do, uh-huh. our center is equipped to pretty much do everything except know, for the of, HSJ. It's interesting. I, that's why I, I asked the question because you had a lab there. You even had a place for people to get acupuncture after, after some treatments. Right. So you right. kind of ran the gamut there. So, but... The point is that, you know, if I can't do it myself, I know other doctors um, in the area who are very good, and that's usually where we give the referral or order a prescription for them to go there. And, you know, at the same time, if the woman's due for a mammogram, Mm -hmm. she can get that done at the same place as well. Right, so it's convenient, and you know the doctors that you're referring to. So after they go for that test, if it comes back normal, or it comes back that the tubes are fine, what happens then? So that's just one of the tests, okay. right? So at the initial consult, um, I talk about the whole gamut of tests. And when they leave me, we kind of give them a written form with all the testing that we want to do. So the HSG is the anatomy assessment. All the other testing that um, the woman does is, is done at our center. And it's a pelvic sonogram, which we usually also do on the day of the initial consult. Mm -hmm. So the pelvic sonogram is, again, looking at your uterus, looking at your ovaries. You typically cannot see the fallopian tubes on the pelvic sonogram. But what I'm looking for um, during that ultrasound is checking the uterus to see if I, I see any fibroids, any polyps, looking at the ovaries, making sure I don't see any ovarian cysts. I'm also looking at what I call a follicle count on the ovary. So the ov- is important. Which is very important. It's very important. So at the beginning of every menstrual cycle, there are a handful of follicles on each ovary. A follicle mm-hmm. is just a little fluid-filled sac that houses the egg. The egg is microscopic. can't see it. 
Every month, the brain sends signals for one follicle to grow, and the egg within that follicle is maturing and then ovulates. However, um, there are other follicles there, and unfortunately, they, we lose those eggs that month. So in any given month, you start out with a handful of follicles, you ovulate one, you lose others. The follicle count at the beginning of a menstrual cycle is representative of kind of overall egg number in those ovaries. Okay. So the higher your follicle count, then the higher your overall egg count. Mm -hmm. So that's an important piece of that ultrasound that we're looking at. It's giving me some sense of what we call your ovarian reserve. Okay. So it's the follicle count is a very in, you know indirect marker of egg number. And people lots of times will hear that number and get concerned. Correct. Yeah. But again, right. you know, each one of these tests are not tests that the individual should try to go home and interpret on their own. Right. Right? It's 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 a piece of a puzzle. Excellent. Putting it together. And everything should be interpreted with the help of the doctor who ordered that test. Right? This isn't stuff that right. you should be trying to interpret at home because <laughs> A follicle count for one person is not the same as for the next. Yeah. There's and no standard follicle count. Right. And, and I'm so happy that you're saying that because so often I will encourage people to make a list of the questions, call the doctor's office, bring the questions with them, and realize that everything's giving them a full picture. Right. So I think that's really important. So, so moving on, what is the fertility evaluation? So we spoke about a semen analysis. We spoke about that HSG test. We spoke about just a general pelvic ultrasound. Right. The next piece of it is really just some blood tests. Okay. Um, we always look at uh, a hormone called AMH, or anti-malarian hormone. Mm -hmm. It's a blood test that is a very, very indirect rough marker, again, of your egg count. So it's also a correlate of your follicle count. AMH is a hormone that's made by all the little eggs that are still there. So the more eggs you have, the higher your AMH value. The AMH is not so specific. It doesn't tell me that you have 30,000 eggs or 50,000 or 100,000. It's on a scale, mm -hmm. and the higher it is, the more eggs that are still there. It is not a marker of your egg quality, the health of your eggs. It's not, yes, I'm fertile, no, I'm not fertile. Again, it's one other data point, mm -hmm. and um, it's just an indirect marker of your egg count. It can be checked on any day of the menstrual cycle. So it's not specific for day two of your cycle, day 21. It can be checked on any day of the menstrual cycle. So that actually makes this test a little bit easier than having to count and run and kind of just waiting. Exactly. Um, additionally, however, if a woman has been on long-term birth control pills, you may be wondering why are they seeing you, but for example, somebody who might be coming in to talk about elective egg freezing, the birth control pills or hormonal contraception sometimes can make it less accurate. So that's just a side note. Well, that kind of makes sense right. also. But for somebody who's been coming in who's trying to get pregnant and not getting pregnant, hopefully they're not on birth control pills, right. it should be an accurate marker kind of any day that it's checked. Um, okay. The next set of hormones that we do are specific to a menstrual cycle, and that is an estrogen and an FSH hormone checked either on the second or third day of your cycle. And what are those hormones? So FSH is a signaling hormone made in your pituitary gland, and it signals your ovary to ovulate every month. As your ovary really slows down, 
and your egg count gets lower, typically as we age, your brain needs to produce more FSH to start that ovulation process. So if we check an FSH on the second or third day of the period, um, we also always have to check it in tandem with estrogen. Mm -hmm. Because if your estrogen is elevated, that actually lowers your FSH. That's how the body works. So we have to check the two together. Ideally, on the second or third day of a menstrual cycle, your estrogen should be under 75 and your FSH should be under 13. If you have an FSH that's over 13 and your estrogen is under 75, that might be an indicator that the ovaries are slowing down and mm -hmm. egg quality might be shifting. Likewise, if your estrogen level is elevated on the second or third day of your period and your FSH is normal, that might mean that you're going to ovulate early, which is something also that may happen right. as we kind of get deeper into our reproductive years. Mm -hmm. um, but again, these are just two little, little pieces of the puzzle. And I've had over the years, I tell everyone, do not Google your FSH value. I think it's impossible for so many people not to do that. And again, I always explain that, um, you know, more and more data is coming out that actually FSH may not be mm -hmm. as good of a tool as we once thought it was. Um, and I, you know, I always explain, unfortunately, a good FSH doesn't mean the eggs are all still good and a bad FSH doesn't mean those eggs are bad. Right. It's just, again, another little data point for, for me to kind of put everything together and, and try to understand what's going on. Right. Well, there's so many pieces to this puzzle. Right. And that's why it's so hard for this third of the population to identify right. what's going on. But so going back to the workup for the female, there's that anatomy check. And then these, the, the ultrasound, the AMH hormone, the estrogen FSH are kind of part of what we call your ovarian reserve testing. Okay. So we've talked about anatomy, your ovarian reserve testing. And then the rest of the testing that we do is just checking some other general medical hormones, making sure your thyroid is, is, is okay, is not overactive or underactive, just checking general blood counts, making sure you're not anemic, you know, making sure there's not another medical, underlying medical issue going mm -hmm. on that might be disrupting your fertility. Right. But really, that's really the fertility evaluation. It's hormonal testing and anatomy check and sperm testing. So it's not very extensive. It's not, but it's interesting because when you talk to people when they come out of the office and you're very clear, you're very articulate, there's always so much anxiety going on while the person's sitting there that it's always in somebody's best interest actually to have their partner there. Right. So that they could hear and they could then both figure out what's next. Right. And what, what was really said and then to feel free to ask if they still have questions. So let's say things come back and they look pretty good. Right. So one third of couples, everything is in the quote unquote normal range. Uh-huh. Right. So tubes are open, sperm's there, looks good under the microscope, ovarian reserve testing's reassuring. There, you know, other medical issues are ruled out. And a right. third of couples fall into that category. So what does that mean? Well, I say the more months that you're having unprotected intercourse and not getting pregnant, the more real the problem is. Right. And our testing is just not able to pick it up. Mm -hmm. So there are other factors that can be going on that our testing can't pick up. Maybe the history suggests it, but still that a diagnostic test is not able to say this is exactly well, what it is. So when does genetic testing come in? 
so I didn't talk about that because that's not really part of the fertility evaluation. Okay. Right? So genetic mm-hmm. testing is something we also offer at every visit. And what we're offering is a blood test, usually on both individuals, right. looking at recessive disorders. So there are multiple different panels out there. Currently, I think we can offer up to 283 different recessive disorders. And there's many, many more than just that. And there's many more than just that. Could you explain a little bit about what that is, recessive disorder? Yes. So genetics are really kind of almost separate from why you're getting pregnant or not getting pregnant. Okay. Right? So, yes, could there be an underlying genetic disorder that you both carry and you're absolutely just not getting pregnant because of it? Possibly, but really, no. What we're screening for when couples come in, um, if their OBGYN hasn't already done this, many couples already come in with genetic screening tests, right? Like they've told their OBGYN, I'm trying, and the OBGYN says, okay, you're trying to get pregnant or you're thinking of getting pregnant. Let's preconceptually do genetic screening to make sure you and your partner are not carriers of the same disorder. Okay. So there are, in genetics, there are autosomal dominant diseases, which Mm -hmm. means if you have you know, we have two copies of every gene. If you have one mutation, you have the disease. So it's dominant. So you would know you have it, okay? And then there's recessive diseases where you have one good copy and one copy that's not functioning well. As long as you have one good copy, you're okay. You don't have the disease. So you could be what we call a quote-unquote silent carrier. Mm -hmm. If your partner has the same recessive, you know, carries the same recessive mutation, you have a 25% chance that an offspring will get both copies of the quote-unquote bad gene or the gene that's not functioning well, right? Right. And then have the disease. Yes, and depending on what that disease is. It could be pretty significant. Right. These are, again, very, very rarely would the disease be actually preventing you from even having a positive pregnancy test. Okay. Okay. Right? I think that's important to hear. Okay. And that's why it's not part of the initial workup. It's not part of what I call a fertility evaluation, but it is part of everybody's initial office visit with us. It is offered to every patient if they have not already had it. Okay, so it's encouraged. Absolutely. Okay. Because. It makes sense. Well, from my standpoint, if I'm going to actively now try to help you get pregnant, and you're pregnant, and then you go to your OBGYN, and then they screen you, and you find out you're both carriers... As a fertility doctor, we actually could have potentially talked about other options. If you're both carriers for the same disease, you could, in theory, talk about going straight to in vitro and testing the embryo ahead of time and screening the embryo. But side note, you know, I always explain to couples, I say, I talk, you know, after I go through everything with them, talk about the testing, I say, and today, if your OBGYN has not offered you general genetic screening, I can offer that to you today. And I, I kind of explain, this isn't typically related to your fertility. Most of these diseases are not really related to your fertility. No, but it's really crucial information. Right. People want that information. Right. Because down the line, once you're pregnant, it could potentially be... Right. It could potentially be a miscarriage. Right. And that's also very significant that's right. going on. So we, we do it kind of prophylactically, I should uh-huh. say, or preemptively. Okay. Um, but back to, okay, so what do we do now when you have a couple where everything checks out as normal and I cannot pinpoint what the issue is. You know, what else could be going on that I said there are other 
fertility risk factors or fertility issues that can be happening that we don't necessarily have a specific test for. A very, very common one is something called endometriosis. Yes. So endometriosis is a highly inflammatory condition where the endometrial cells can grow abnormally in your pelvis and really honestly throughout your body. Endometrial cells are normally what line your uterus. That's what thickens in response to your hormones every month. That's what's shedding when you get your period. Those cells can grow abnormally in your pelvis, on your fallopian tubes, on your ovaries. Um, they, the condition also is associated with a lot of inflammatory proteins that are circulating in your body. And we know there's a very strong correlation between endometriosis and infertility. In some cases, we know why. When endometriosis sometimes is very, very severe, the tubes are totally blocked, right? So if your tubes are blocked, right. that could prevent it. But even in mild cases, meaning they actually have surgery and we see that it's visually very mild, there is still an association with infertility. And um, the theories are that this inflammatory condition can just make it hard for egg and sperm to come together. This inflammatory condition can potentially compromise egg quality. This inflammatory condition can potentially prevent an implantation. Um, so there's definitely a high association of endometriosis with infertility. And people always say, well, shouldn't I know if I have that? And I say, okay, you know, I always ask about pain, painful periods, because endometriosis also can be associated with a lot of pelvic pain. So um, painful menstruation, pain starting with your ovulation that continues, pain with intercourse, a lot of bowel changes at the time of your, you know, related to your menstrual cycle. People I've spoken to have it usually associated with some kind of discomfort to pain, depending on exactly what you're saying, depending on, you know, how how severe it is. Right. And what do you do for that? So so it depends. I, I also explain to women, I say, they say, shouldn't I know I have that? I say, you know what? You may have it and you may not have the pain symptoms, but you may have the infertility symptoms. Okay. So if somebody on the ultrasound, I see severe endometriosis or if their history, meaning, you know, pretty debilitating pelvic pain, they may get referred for surgery. Surgery is really the only way to definitively know if you have endometriosis. Again, an ultrasound, sometimes when it's severe, you can see it and or see features suggestive of it. Same thing with an MRI. But you could have a very mild case and, and everything looks normal on all of your imaging. Um, and, you know, even at the time of surgery, you could, the specialist, the, you know, endometriosis surgeon can see it, resect it, remove it, but there's still also microscopic disease that can exist as well. Um, but, you know, so the, again, back to 30% of couples with unexplained infertility, if we probably did surgery on all those women, we'd probably see probably a third of them may have endometriosis. Right. So, but we don't refer everybody to surgery because it's invasive and there's risks. And, you know, without any real life impacting symptoms, you may not go to surgery. So the thought process is that fertility treatment bypasses the, the effects of the endometriosis. So again, back to a third of couples with unexplained infertility, they're like, okay, doctor, so it's unexplained. So what do we do? What does that mean? Right. What do we do? I'm still not getting pregnant. It's month 16, 16 months of trying. What do we do? And I say, and it's exhausting. Yeah, it, it it's exhausting physically, emotionally, and financially. Right. In many ways. So, I say, okay, we we actually initiate treatment, and the treatment 
in some ways is non-targeted, right? Because we're not really sure what we're treating. Educated guess. Right. And so we initiate treatment. And what is that treatment? Well, it depends on the couple. It depends on their age. Um, If they, if the, you know, if they're younger, I would say under the age of 35, um, they can start with kind of least invasive, least involved form of treatment, which is the female might take oral medications like Clomid or Letrozole, and then we do what we call an IUI or an insemination. And so what this really is is kind of augmenting the female's ovulation, perfecting the timing of it, and right around the time of ovulation, putting the sperm closer to the egg at the top of the uterus. Mm -hmm. So again, it's pretty nonspecific, right? It's just trying to tighten everything up and take out any time factor to you know get the sperm closer to where it needs to be trying to take out as much risk as you can in this situation and and optimize it right but still um but still it still relies on your anatomy to be intact um you know it still relies on the sperm being able to penetrate the egg on its own which semen analysis doesn't tell us that the semen analysis simply tells us the counts are good the movement's good the shape is in a normal range but it doesn't tell me if when that sperm hits the egg, it can actually penetrate, right? So, right. so IUI treatment still relies on all the anatomy to be working, right? Yes. That HSG can tell me that fluid flows through those fallopian tubes. But can it really tell me that those fallopian tubes are so pristine that it can pick up a microscopic egg and a microscopic sperm and they can both meet together? No, it doesn't tell me that. So, right? It's, so it's still... You know, IUI treatment is still relying on the anatomy to function. Yeah. But there is success with the IUIs. In in certain patients, yes. yes. So if you have unexplained infertility, you're ovulating every month, the tubes are open, the sperm looks okay. After three rounds of, of Clomid or Letrozole and IUI, if you are still not pregnant, now that form of treatment is probably not helping you any more than just trying naturally. Okay. That's what the studies suggest. Uh-huh. And so um, what does help? going to in vitro. Right. And can you elaborate on that a little bit, what in vitro really is so that people can understand it? So in vitro, IVF, um, in vitro fertilization, lots of different ways of calling it. I know. Um, It it entails extracting eggs, fertilizing them in a lab with the sperm, and growing embryos. And where do they do that? So that has to be done at an IVF lab. So your fertility specialists, most fertility specialists are associated with an IVF lab. Not all, but most are. I would think so. I would think they'd want to put a lot of trust and do a lot of research in the ones that they use. Right. Since they're so affiliated and significant to the process. Right. You know, most specialists are linked with an IVF lab. And so um, traditional IVF that has been around for about 40 years Again, extracting eggs, fertilizing, making embryos, and then based on visual appearance of the embryos, implanting embryos into the uterus. Fast forward 40 years to 2019, um, there are some advances, thankfully, in IVF. And they're amazing advances, too. I mean, right. it's and really mind-blowing in many ways. You know, the goal with IVF is how do we select the single best embryo to result in a healthy live birth, right? That's the goal. Yes. So, uh, and it's interesting. I'm sorry to cut you off. You use, use the word single because not that long ago, they were 
doing multiple, like be able to give people right. much more options to have twins than they do today. Right. So again, fast forward to 2019, our goal is a healthy baby, a single healthy baby. So over the years, when we've tried to improve IVF, what are we trying to improve? How do we pick the best embryo, right? Right, absolutely. Right. How are we going to pick the single best embryo that can be implanted and result in a healthy baby? Mm-hmm. And so, because ultimately that's all that matters is that the baby be healthy. That's the goal. And initially, when we developed IVF, we just really weren't very good at growing embryos and deciding which were healthy. So, as soon as we kind of made them, we put them back into the uterus. You know, we used to really only have the technology to grow the embryos for several days, for day th- for about three days. And we would put back multiple embryos just to achieve a pregnancy. Um, and unfortunately, one of the byproducts were high-order multiples, twins, triplets, quadruplets, et cetera. So the next step in progressing IVF was, okay, we're putting embryos back on day three of growth. However, the embryo doesn't really even implant until it's at what we call the blastocyst stage, which isn't until day five, six, or seven. So let's at least learn how to grow those embryos to the blastocyst stage. And that's what we, you know, that's how IVF progressed. We learned how to grow to the blastocyst stage. And you might see embryos look great on day three, but day five or day six, they don't look as good. And so you were sort of already seeing the selection process happening in the lab. And then day five, okay, which looked the best, put still put in a couple. But still, people, women didn't get pregnant. Still, women had miscarriages. Or still, they had multiples because we were putting in more than one embryo. So now, okay, this is an area that, you know, around the world people are looking at and how can we improve selection? Um, You know, the technology that I would say probably has sort of taken off the most and is used, you know, the most widely is now we, before implant, we do chromosomal testing on the embryo. Yeah, I think that's a huge difference that that's being done. And again, it's still not... Standard across the board at every IVF center. IVF centers have it's sort not. of different weight. No, it's not. I didn't realize that. I thought that it was standard because what they're doing with that is pretty amazing. Right. There are still, you know, it depends where you go. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say at a center like CCRM, um, you know, around the country, in New York in particular, we are big advocates of testing the chromosomes of the embryo before you implant it. And why? Because, again, Number yeah. Step number one is for a healthy baby, the right backbone, right? You need the right number of chromosomes there. Absolutely. It goes along with whether or not you want the genetic testing in some way. It's like how many things do you want to look at to make sure that what you're doing is going down the line where ultimately the child that you'll have is as healthy as possible. Right. So I, this, there's also a lot of, I always have to kind of explain, there's chromosomes and then there's your genes, right? Right. Because I always have couples say, well, our genetic screening, you told me we're okay. We're not carriers for the same thing, so why are you testing my embryo? Well, it's two different things. Said, exactly. Yeah, so we always have to explain it's two different things. There's the chromosomes, mm-hmm. and on those chromosomes are the genes. So, But step num- number one are the chromosomes. Chromosomal aberrations, meaning extra chromosomes and missing chromosomes, are most commonly why an embryo never even implants or miscarries, Right. Yes. Most chromosomal aberrations are not compatible with life. Uh-huh. So most are sort of, you know, screened out routinely. But what I explain is if we're going through IVF, 
particularly if you're over the age of 35. And we know that as the age of the egg source, and even in men over 50, as the age of the sperm source increases, the DNA of that egg or sperm can be abnormal, resulting in abnormal chromosomes. So if we do in vitro and we don't test the embryos and we put them in, you still have a 20 to 30% miscarriage rate because most miscarriages are chromosomal. Right. But and if we test the chromosomes first and then put the embryo in, your miscarriage rate is 10% or lower. Which is huge because there's so many miscarriages in this world. Right. And there's miscarriages that people don't even realize they're having. Right. And as you're going through the IVF process, when you have a miscarriage, it's another loss. You know, and lots of times, depending on the stage, there's a lot of mourning that has to go on along right. with it. And to circle back to unexplained infertility. Yes. So what I always explain explain to couples is that there is a reason that you have infertility. We just haven't uncovered it yet. And I explain IVF is oftentimes both therapeutic and diagnostic. It's mm -hmm. therapeutic because it's going to dramatically increase your odds, but it's diagnostic because now we should start to get some answers. Okay. Right. Which gives hope. Which of course gives hope and also just allows me to be a better doctor because I now know what I can target. Right? Exactly. So, and the patients look at me and say, what do you mean by that? It's diagnostic. And I explain, well, here, let me explain to you. If we get 10 eggs and the majority of those eggs fertilize well in the lab, grow well in the lab, and then if we test the chromosomes and the majority of those eggs result in chromosomally intact embryos, that's letting me know egg sperm embryo quality are very good. So that is pointing to some sort of anatomic issue. Mm -hmm. Either egg and sperm couldn't meet naturally, they couldn't fertilize naturally. So that's pointing more to an anatomic issue. Um, however, if we see more of a drop off, a high attrition rate from what we start out with eggs to what becomes a healthy embryo, that's letting me know that embryo quality is at the root of this. Whether it's from the egg or sperm gets a little harder to decipher, but there might be patterns we're seeing with the embryos and in the lab that can kind of point to one factor versus the other. I think most people, too, are very happy to hear that you can do that. It's, um, it's great that the medicine has evolved to that point. The other thing, lots of times people think, oh, I have 10 eggs, and that's great. But 10 eggs doesn't necessarily result in 10 fertilized eggs. So the attrition rate could be pretty significant. Right. And do you find yourself having to talk to people about that a lot if they're, if they're excited with 10 follicles or 10 eggs? That right. Are gonna be so I think a lot of, you know, our job as fertility specialists once patients embark on treatment is really trying to explain the process and manage the expectations. Yeah, yeah. And that's hard. I think that's hard in many ways. So for the people going through the unexplained infertility, there are diagnostic testings, there's different ways of looking at things, there's treatment. Um, what, what would be the ultimate takeaway? Because you've given us so much information today and it's so appreciated and you explained it so clearly and so well that um, it makes it easy to understand and it's not an easy thing to understand. Right. What would be the biggest takeaway? So I think, you know, I always have this conversation with my patients. On one hand, it's frustrating that they're unexplained. Um, but on the other hand, I say, well, it's not always a bad thing to have unexplained infertility because overall, the prognosis with unexp in unexplained infertility is very high. Mm -hmm. 
right? So, um, and that seems like such a contradiction, right? And so I cannot tell you, you know, from you know after the initial visit and a month of testing, I maybe can't pinpoint exactly what the issue is. But as you embark on the treatment process, we're going to get information, and overall, your prognosis with unexplained infertility is very good. So are there any numbers associated with it or not really? It's too hard. It's too hard, really. Too hard to do that. Yeah. It's wonderful to know that overall it's not a bad thing. Right. And that you can get pregnant. Right. And if you can't get pregnant, there are other alternatives that could take place. Right. And And so, you know, we can talk briefly, right? Like if you... Now, okay, let's say you have top quality tested embryos and we're implanting them. There's a small subset of patients who still aren't getting pregnant. Right. And so now that kind of, again, you know, what I always say is with each attempt of treatment that's not successful, we need to learn something Mm -hmm. so we can point you in the right direction. And so it's a great philosophy. If we're doing IVF and we're testing those embryos and you're still miscarrying or not implanting and that's happening more than, you know, repetitively, now we're looking at some sort of issue with that uterus holding. And those are Mm -hmm. rare scenarios, right? Uh But first, you have to control for that embryo. Ingredient number one is a healthy embryo. Right. If that's still not working, now we're embarking on other you know, down other yeah. roads. And the reason why I asked that question, even though we we're just going to talk about unexplained infertility today and what goes into trying to identify how to get pregnant, which was great, and I so appreciate you coming in and doing that today, um, is because there is always something at the end of the line. And so there's never kind of a, a feeling that nothing can be done. And this is really the first step of what people do, and it's a big step. And right. usually it results in, in a positive outcome. Right. Yeah. So thank you so much for all this information today. I really appreciate it. And, you know, the one thing that you might want to tell people about a little bit is about CCRM right. or about the facility. Right. It is unique. So CCRM is Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine. The original um, center is right outside of Denver. And um, historically, they were basically just on the forefront of developing a lot of IVF technology and as a result really had what we call, you know, the quote unquote highest success rate. They had a lot of firsts. A lot of firsts. A lot of firsts. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of the IVF technology that is proving to be kind of the most successful today was really developed by a lot of their team. Um, And their IVF lab has just really been top notch for, you know, decades and so they the IVF lab is something that you can that you can replicate right you know I always say um, you know every center every IVF center has their sort of quote-unquote special sauce Uh right every IVF center is not created equally and so um, you know basically what what they've done is that they've built labs in various locations and of course done the research to find you know, good team of doctors to work at those labs. Um, so, you know, so that's kind of how this originated. But, um, you know, I always say to my patients, I'm only as good as my lab is. Uh-huh. I could be an amazing doctor, but if my lab can't give me good embryos, 
I'm not going to be successful. So CCRM was That's developed humble. right about three years ago. Um, we have four physicians, mm-hmm. and um, you know the reason it was developed, it was built here, was that prior to opening our office here, we had hundreds of patients who. Um, you know, there was already great, great IVF in New York, but if they didn't have success, they were going out there for treatment. And so it's just, okay, let's build a center here. And um, I think what makes us unique is that we're really only four physicians. Yeah. So for being, you know, a lab that's sort of top quality, we're actually a smaller center than many. Um, Very personalized. Right. There's four physicians. We really sort of practice very much as a team. Um, we all know each other's patients. Uh, we do all of our own, what we call monitoring in the morning. Uh, most of us do our own procedures as well. So it's just a really intimate environment um, and just really trying to make it more personalized one-on-one care and not kind of cookie-cutter treatment. Right, and it's relatively new for a center in New York. And so that's great. Well, I, I thought it would be nice to share a little bit about the center because when you walk in, it has its own feel to it. Right. And um, when you think of Colorado, maybe that's partially the feel to it. So it's very comfortable and very relaxed. Yeah. I mean, so, it's it's a, you. as you, you know, anyone Perfect. on this journey knows it's a really, really difficult, stressful process. And so our goal is to try to take away some of that stress. Yeah. Thank you so much. We hope everybody gets the outcomes that they're looking for. Thank you so much for having me. And if somebody wants to contact you, how would they get a hold of you? So they can um, call our front desk at 212-290-8100. Go to our website, CCRM Mm -hmm. New York. Um, My email is my first initial, last name at ccrmny.com. Great, great. Thank you so much. And if anybody has any questions or want to contact me, please feel free to reach out at my website, lorimetz.net.